0: Hello and welcome to Scan Today's Let's Talk AI podcast, where you can hear from AI researchers about what's actually going on with AI and what is just clickbait headlines. This is our latest Last Week in AI episode, in which you can get a quick digest of last week's AI news and a bit of discussion between several AI researchers as to what we think about these news stories. To start things off, we'll hand it off to Daniel Bashir to summarize what happened in AI last week. And I'll be back along with my co host to discuss these news stories in just a few minutes.
1: Hello, this is Daniel Bashir here with our weekly news summary. This week, we'll look at human AI symbiosis, biased medical AI, AI for work meetings, and AI falling in love. The classic idea we've held about humans merging with AI often brings up images of the Terminator or the Singularity, a sort of physical bond between humans and machines. In VentureBeat, Gary Grossman, Senior VP of Technology Practice at Edelman, ruminates on the future of natural and artificial intelligence. Grossman notes the positive hopes that AI will automate repetitive tasks and release humans to engage in higher-level, creative work. But a tension exists between the drive to use AI and its potential to overtake us. While AI is still in its infancy, many worry about the repercussions of superintelligent AI. Grossman sees a coming symbiosis between humans and AI, even if not a physical connection. We're already seeing collaborative systems that combine AI models with human intuition and how that can improve outcomes in areas like healthcare. There is an array of predicted outcomes as AI grows out of its infancy, ranging from utopian to dystopian. Grossman's article leaves the door quite open, and indeed, it is hard to know what possibilities will emerge in a future we don't yet know. As we noted in that first story, healthcare is one area where AI can augment human capabilities and intuitions, but AI bias is ever-present and poses significant dangers. Wrong decisions in a medical context can have deleterious consequences, and Scientific American argues this means high-stakes medical AI algorithms must be trained with datasets drawn from diverse populations. While using representative datasets is the goal, the article notes this isn't the status quo and acknowledges the difficulty of gathering diverse data. The sanctity of medical data, privacy laws, and economic incentives all make the acquisition of medical data more difficult, even for good purposes. But these problems will have to be solved in a world where AI begins to play the role of expert in high-stakes decisions across multiple domains, including law enforcement and loan approval. Solving the data issue alone won't be enough to create safe, effective AI, but it is an important first hurdle. The article states that we must build the technical, regulatory, economic, and privacy infrastructure to deliver the large and diverse data needed to train these algorithms. Turning our sights from medicine, many office workers have been working from home for months now, and the change of pace, along with Zoom fatigue, might be causing many of us to lose interest during meetings. In a year where the already existing difficulties of meetings are compounded by technical issues, a wave of startups has arisen to meet the challenge. As Wired reports, Macro makes a collaborative interface for Zoom, and Fireflies integrates with popular video conferencing platforms to create a searchable record for each meeting. Headroom wants to take this even farther, using emotion recognition to map hard-to-detect expressions from co-workers into visible, real-time feedback for presenters, translating head nods and thumbs up into cues like emojis. Given that the pains of teleconferencing are multifaceted, other startups have popped up to help with aspects like scheduling and delivering presentations. Given that many tech companies are poised to offer more generous work-from-home policies, We can expect more creative uses of AI to aid our work meetings in the future. And our final story today is a heartwarming one, of GPT-3 falling in love. The New York Times has been playing with OpenAI's language model, and after prompting it to write about itself, they asked it to write a modern love column, in the style of the Times Weekly column about relationships. GPT-3 wrote dozens of columns, and the Times shared three of its inventions with us. The first, an introspection, tells us of the advances in AI to come. The second and third, called Like Water for Circuit and From Affair to Eternity, tell two starkly different tales of how a woman named Frances first met her husband, Dean. That's all for this week's news roundup. Stay tuned for a more in-depth discussion of recent events with Andre and Sharon.
0: Thanks, Daniel, and welcome back, listeners. Now that you've had that summary of last week's news, feel free to stick around for a bit of a laid back discussion about these stories and some other ones. I am Andre Krenkov, a third year PhD student at the Stanford Vision and Learning Lab. I focus mostly on learning algorithms for robotic manipulation and reinforcement learning in my research. And with me, unusually, are two co-hosts this week, starting yes. off with Jackie.
2: Well, I'm Jackie I'm a third-year PhD student at Carnegie Mellon University's Robotics Institute. I mostly do research in machine learning for robotics, in particular, how we can better use simulations to make robots more adaptable in the real world.
3: And I'm Sharon, a fourth year PhD student in the machine learning group, working with Andrew Ng. I do research on generative models, improving generalization of neural networks, and applying machine learning to tackling the climate crisis, as well as to medicine. And I don't work on robots. I'm not as cool as the other two. <laughs> but I'm back, and uh, I am tanner than ever, actually. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Welcome back, uh... Very good that you had a vacation and uh you know took a break from everything, including a podcast, as you should.
3: Took a break from twenty twenty actually.
0: Right. But, uh, took a black yeah, from pretty, pretty much the world as it is. You we went to Hawaii when COVID is uh, less of a factor, it sounds like.
3: Yes, much less.
0: But now you're back and we can return to our usual podcast routine. Although now we are going to try to have a third co-host. Let's see how it goes. And let's go ahead and dive in straight to our initial set of stories to discuss, which uh, is for once not actually kind of new stories. We have a topic here, which is discussions on the machine learning subreddit which is a big, big subreddit where a lot of people discuss new AI research, new machinery research and kind of meta discussions about research. And the topics we have to discuss are two threads that happened uh, late last week. The first one was why you shouldn't get your PhD, which you can imagine what that was about. And the second kind of the response was why you should get your PhD. Um, That's Just to summarize real quick, The shouldn't article made this whole point that it, it argued that PG programs take kind of uh, excited young researchers and you're not allowed to do anything really creative. You're you're forced to conform in your research and then you're stuck doing that for like five, six years, whereas you could be off earning way more money or maybe doing other things that are more creative. Basically, there's a huge opportunity cost. And that was the main case for that. uh, Fred, it was a bit of a rant by someone uh, late into their PhD, I think. And then uh, as a counter reply, there was the should piece that basically said that you can have a lot of creativity and good stuff in your PhD, but, you know, Bad things happen. You need to be pretty strategic about it. So uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, I know I responded to the shouldn't Fred with my take.
1: <laughs> and oh my.
0: I, I didn't <laughs> didn't
1: agree oh with my. it. Yeah, it
0: spicy,
2: spicy. Yeah,
0: it was a uh, pretty it was a pretty negative take. So I I responded saying you know uh, I don't know. I think mine is going. Not quite like that so far, so uh, I don't know how you can make a claim in general, but yeah, what do you think about the sort of criticism and um, which one do you more agree with, I guess? Hopefully the second one.
3: I think I agree with, uh, to some extent, both of them. Uh, I definitely, um, I actually agree very much with a comment in the, uh, why you shouldn't get your PhD where they say, you know, actually in industry, uh, working at an actual job in a big organization is also very effective at smacking quote the creativity out of bright-eyed new employees, and I think that's true as well. And so, um, and I think the really funny like suggestion there is uh, the secret is to be a quote unquote closet rebel, <laughs> 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 where you do crazy stuff behind the scenes, um, and just make sure it looks like you're doing things in a canonical way to the casual observer. And I would like to generalize this to dating. Um, where <laughs> you want to date someone who knows how to like pretend to do all like, you know, some of the formalities, but has a little bit of crazy inside. Otherwise, that's just like so not fun. Right. Like, so <laughs> I think like there's an aspect of this to everything. And, um, Yeah, it makes me, uh, I I don't know. I I actually, for the most part, tell people not to do their PhD, uh, not to do a PhD. So uh, even though I am currently very much enjoying my PhD, um, but I can't say that for the other three years.
2: (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah, I I think I think the fundamental problem is like this whole PhD experience has a very high variance. Right. It varies greatly. between fields, schools, labs, advisors, uh, and your cohort. So uh, you can't really know prior to joining a PhD, whether or not this is something that you will really enjoy and commit to for the next few years. Uh, And you also can't easily sample a lot of different options. It's not like you can visit multiple labs and multiple schools and then make your decision. Uh, so if you get unlucky and you 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 get stuck with a uh, a lab or advisor that you don't want to work with, or get into a field that afterwards you realize oh this is not something I'm that interested in, it's very hard to switch. Uh, we, we, I, I mean personally I do know people who have switched labs, switched advisors, but those are definitely on the rare side. Um, so I, I think because there's so much friction, trying a PhD is a little risky uh, just because you can't easily uh, choose better options. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Uh, This uh, the second one. Why you should get your PhD basically was a response to the first one and listed this whole list of like seven things that you should try to aim for. you know have a good phd experience and and the top one is a good relationship with your advisor or supervisor right and that's the sort of thing where you know uh it's kind of hard to predict when you start out right and uh, i think most schools stanford is actually an exception because you can rotate so you have some ability to try kind of have a trial period sort of thing but in general Yeah, the system is not set up to allow you to easily sort of be careful and sample different options and sort of interview your uh, prospective bosses. And I think unlike an industry where it's relatively easy to switch jobs, as you say, it's kind of pretty, once you've aligned, it's kind of a big deal to try and change the setup. So I guess the criticism does point to a good discussion on maybe we should change things to make it so there's less variance. But I know that, um, you know, as you say, Sharon, I think in industry, it's very similar or can be very similar of, you know, there can be very bad, boring, terrible jobs where you feel like the soul is getting sucked out of you and there can be really jobs that you love and that, you know, pay a lot and also are fun and so on. And I think with a Ph.D., as of anything, you've got to try and make it so it's a good experience. Otherwise, there is a potential for very bad outcomes.
3: Right. Definitely. I, I think it's also about thinking about how it aligns with your own goals. Um, and what you want to get out of it, and that can be very hard going into a PhD because you're like, oh, this seems like interesting, or I, I respect this one person who did a PhD, <laughs> and um, and that's not a great sample size to go off of. But I think like human life experience often does go off of those, um, and so uh, yeah, I think it can be pretty, uh, as Jackie mentioned, high variance, and as a result very hard to gauge whether you'll like it or not. Um, That being said, I will also say that I think a vast majority of people are coming directly from undergrad or master's, you know, still in school kind of thing. And um, I know that going directly into industry afterwards, there also is a bit of a shock. And I think um, that same shock might also occur. I don't know. Um, But I think it might just be like everyone During that period goes through some kind of shock. And so it's either you're in a PhD or you're like working for a company, um, you're going to go through it, but it's going to be different. And I'm sure uh, and I think like since we're social creatures, we compare ourselves to our peers a lot. So I think it depends on who your peers are and who you consider your peers that you're comparing yourself to in terms of going along with your career and general life happiness and so i think um that plays a huge part in whether or not you're happy in the phd because i think it's easy to look outside and be like oh look at all those friends making seven figures where <laughs> i'm you know where i'm i'm like i basically don't see the light of day or something like that i don't know you know the phd but um <laughs> um Life is sometimes a choice. Um, but the, but it, it's like, Oh, or, or you don't think of it that way. You're like, Oh, all my other friends are in peaches, or my other friends are in jobs and they're just like, they hate it. They hate their manager and blah, blah, blah. You know? So I don't know.
2: Yeah. So I, I do want to sort of make a, make a positive comment, (laughs) (laughs) uh, you know, since we're all doing this, um, ideally, I mean, in in a good PhD experience, what one thing that really stands out is just having a lot of freedom. Um, so intellectual freedom, freedom over what, what you work on. I mean, ideally you have enough space to explore whatever you're interested in. You have support from some of the most, um, uh, well-known experts in, in the field, in the world. And there there is no concern for immediate uh, commercial applications, right? So you're not like um, pressured by financial incentives necessarily. And a good advisor should shield uh, their students uh, from concerns about funding. So, you know, it should be uh, almost a liberating experience. Uh, you have a lot of freedom, work on whatever you want. Uh, there is an opportunity cost, of course, that you're not making uh, industry type, um, uh, compensations. Uh, but if this is something you value, then the PhD could be good for you. you
0: no, know, it's funny. Uh, one of the things I sort of came to accept early on in my research career, I think probably when I was starting my PhD, uh, is that you don't, often you don't get to just do what you want, <laughs> you know, there's this kind of expectation of just a reality and you do want some amount of freedom. Uh, but I think there's always a bit of sort of negotiation involved. Right. And that's just like, um, true of, of anything in life. You gotta sort of expect some amount of having to agree and get people on board with things. And then maybe sometimes you'll have to make, uh, Little sacrifices in direction, or basically agree with people and, and come to a middle ground. So I think expectations are a lot to do it, and doing research in your undergrad or in your masters before deciding to do a PhD, to have a feel of how research works and to know that. You know this is how it works it's hard it's it's probably a lot less enjoyable than well you know it's easy to have a romantic view of research as a sort of like going to walks in the park and thinking through things when i think the process can be a lot more painful once you kind of try to publish a paper and a phd you know the, the most you can say you get out of it by the end is that you've had a few years of doing research So the main reason to do a Ph.D. is if you really want to do a Ph.D. and learn to do research uh, and do research for a few years. And um, you may or may not want to continue academia afterward. Uh, One of the posts that was one of the points that this first post made was that you get very little out of it at the end. And so I think another reply is, well, ideally, what you get out of it is what you have along the way, which is the freedom to do research. You know meet other researchers go to conferences that should be uh, in decent part what you hope to get out of it and what you kind of sacrifice going to industry and get a lot of money for because you want to do that uh, kind of research
3: yeah one thing that jumps to mind is so i i did a little bit of research in my undergrad and um which was my undergrad thesis and i really enjoyed it and i think one thing to kind of meditate on is why did you, like, let's say you do do something beforehand and you're like, you know, I think I want to do a PhD because I tried research out and I really like it, but like, why? So I think like distilling why was really helpful in, in navigating and figuring out what I, what I actually wanted. Um, cause I think, I think we talk about, oh, having freedom, blah, blah, blah. But I think some people, um, especially in the beginning of the PhD might not, uh, might not benefit the most from freedom even if it's something they want uh it might just be too much to just push someone into the deep end because they might not actually swim um so i don't know i think it definitely varies and it's actually thinking about it from like the advisor's perspective it's a pretty hard task of like oh how do i make this person like creative and like think for themselves but also like be valuable to my group you know
0: yeah, that's a part of the variance for sure, is you have a lot of freedom in how to design your schedule, how to try to go about research uh, and yeah, as a result, you can have bad experiences where you're not able to kind of get things together. But hopefully uh, you have mentors that kind of guide your development and guide your research and help you, you know, do what you want, hopefully okay so i think that's been a pretty fun discussion let's hope that you know uh, as a result uh, listeners i mean i guess all of us here are doing our phds currently and enjoy it <laughs> but it's definitely something that it's a big decision and you should go and google and there's various good you know blog posts on should you do your phd or not and uh, definitely, if you go in with a very romantic viewpoint of research, you might be disappointed. I'll say that much. But uh, now onto a more kind of regular uh, slate of articles to discuss—more uh, what we usually do—we have kind of a combination of articles all having to do with the topic of bias. So, from New York Times, you have "Can We Make a Robots List Bias to VR?" From Brookings, uh, we have how AI bots and the voice assistants reinforce gender bias. And we also have from VentureBeat, training AI algorithms at mostly smiling faces reduces accuracy and introduces bias, according to research. So uh, a few different articles all having to do with bias in AI or with AI algorithms. I guess uh, maybe which ones of these do you think is the most interesting? Sharon, Jackie, which one should we... Uh
2: tackle <laughs> so i think one we, we we talked a lot about bias on this podcast mostly in, in our newsletter and articles um maybe this is actually a more meta question looking at these articles like what about um bias in ai that that makes this sort of a different problem almost than uh just bias that we had <laughs> in our decision-making uh, apparatus b- before AI, right? It's not like uh, hu- human decision-making didn't have bias or other non-AI automated decision-making didn't have bias. Like, w- What is specific about AI that makes it challenging, hard to address, and it's such a big problem. As you can see, we have a lot of articles talking about it.
0: Yeah, I, that's a good good question, and I think People care about AI bias and, and researchers care about it and we care about it and some degree because it's a developing technology still, right? It's pretty nascent and I guess the hope is we can not capture the biases we already have as humans and various processes. And, you know, usually bias is seen for negative and we try to minimize it. So I think these articles highlight once more that You know, we are still early on in deploying AI in the real world and trying to figure out how to do it (laughs) in a way that mitigates some of the bias that usually is there and makes use of technology in a responsible way that doesn't exacerbate bias, which is sort of very unjust and annoying and kind of. Yeah, it just feels bad to be aware of. There's even more bias now to introduce AI to, for the things. Uh, what do you think, Sharon?
3: I think one big component of this is that AI is able to work at scale. And as a result, it doesn't have you know time and, to some extent, space, space in terms of the Internet <laughs> to uh, scale up its presence and to kind of push that bias through, through space, you know, to lots of people and also in a very small amount of time. And I think beforehand there was, uh, there's a bit of, you know, time is able to be some kind of rate limiter um, for us. Uh, and that could prevent, um, exacerbating bias to, I guess, to like instead of the work there would be a greater distribution let's put it that way uh, of what kind of bias is observed across people but now it's all concentrated if we do deploy this ai system Um, and there's no um, that time limiting factor and i think we see this actually i see a parallel oddly to kind of genetically modified crops or something like or genetic modification oftentimes like because we don't have the rate limiting step of time anymore, we like our genetically engineering, you know, corn is all just like one corn. It's like just one, you know, like one gene now. And that's like, oh, that's great because we can do this like super fast. But if there's one pest, then we could actually just make corn extinct or something. Like, so that it's just, you know, like it's, it's, um, it, it concentrates it all on one thing. And because we don't have like, you know, evolution's no longer playing that putting that pressure on it it no that no longer is happening and that's kind of this weird interesting parallel and i think that's why people are kind of scared of ai where we want ai to be almost the best human or the one that's like least biased right for it to be okay to disseminate because at least it will be better i i get that sense but that also sounds like a very tall order
0: yeah it is a very tall order and i guess it's to some extent aspirational so uh, i think the New York Times article, Can We Make Our Robots Less Biased Than We Are, is quite good on this. And uh, if listeners want to dive in, that's quite a long article of many examples of bias uh, in facial recognition and self-driving cars, where you really don't want them to work better for one group of people than others. And in particular, of course, they often reinforce existing uh, injustices where things work better for white people than for black people, for instance. And so this article points out that hundreds of AI and robotics researchers signed statements committing themselves to changing the, the way the field works and combating such bias. For instance, there was a statement from the organization Black in Computing, and there was also a statement or another manifesto titled No Justice, No Robots. Uh, where actually the idea was to not work with police for now uh, so that, you know, that can be fixed and the systems there can be made more equitable before we scale up with AI. So, yeah, I I think uh, some good examples in that article. And definitely when you get to scaling up, I guess you want to be extra careful. And as you say, Sharon, kind of be the best version of human decision making, we can make it uh, ideally and not sort of even what we have now.
3: Well, I think that ties into our next article titled Facial Recognition Research Needs an Ethical Reckoning uh, in Nature. And uh, uh, the TLDR is that people are now, you know, Rethinking how ethics should be applied in facial recognition research more and more, uh, especially since the harm in using public data without consent is becoming more and more evident. Um, What are your thoughts on this, Jackie and Andre?
2: Yeah, I think that this is very much related because uh, I think looking at Just the comments that we made. It seems like one of the problems is that uh, AI, and in this case, facial recognition, this is a very immature field, right? It's it's developing very fast, a lot of uh, moving parts. Um, People don't know what the best practices are. And at the same time, they can be easily deployed, (laughs) right? Uh, At these uh, world scale uh, products, impact a lot of people. but what's being deployed is still sort of a research product, and people are not aware of all the uh, uh, downstream um, societal impacts. So I think that this is one highlight of that, and how you know researchers were doing all this facial recognition research didn't fully uh, realize or internalize like uh, what are the, all the things that uh, all the applications of the research. And also at the same time, I think the other thing this article pointed out was how a lot of the data sets used to enable these research were uh, collected just on the Internet uh, with faces of uh, just random people, pictures found on the Internet. But these people did not give consent to having their faces be used in these studies uh, and ultimately in applications that may have uh, questionable uh, ethics. so yeah, I, th- I think one step uh, removing data sets that didn't go through proper, uh, that weren't collected with proper ethics review suffered a positive step. But I, I think I do remember an article that we covered a couple of weeks ago for about how there even if you remove one data set, there's all these derived data sets. People are still using them. Uh, researchers don't really have that complete control over where their research is going to end up.
0: Yeah. Uh- To that point of what researchers um, made, this this nature article is kind of building on top of uh, a a survey they had. So it was a survey of 480 researchers who have published papers on facial recognition, AI and computer science. And then, yeah, there's some very interesting results um, kind of as the title implies, in general, a lot of the researchers felt that things need to change. So, for instance, Uh, 40% respondents said that researchers should get informed consent from people before putting their faces in a database Um, or uh, close to that uh, researchers can use online photos when terms of licenses permit their use which in many cases that was not uh, the case of existing data sets and it uh, also got into kind of more tricky and more ethically troubling territory, for instance, uh, is it ethical to do facial recognition research on vulnerable populations that might not be able to freely give informed consent, such as a Muslim population in Western China? 70% of researchers said that it might be ethically questionable if informed consent is given, which, again, um, when we get into these end applications, uh, especially, and there have been papers on you know, recognizing the people from a massive population in China and that caused a lot of discussion. That's when researchers really need to think more about the ethical implications of things.
2: Yeah, I think this is an area where sort of researchers have an outsized uh, responsibility because the, the people who are uh, negatively impacted <laughs> by um, these uh, facial recognition system or or whatever system it is that, you know, collects people's data without their consent or whatever. Uh, the, the, the people who are impacted by this might not be aware of it. Uh, it's very hard for anybody to find out whether or not their face was part of a data set that powered some uh, facial recognition software for a self-surveillance company, for example. Uh, you can't really trace that back. And researchers and people who apply this technology sort of have all the power here almost. Uh, so that gives them more responsibility to make sure that what they're doing uh, satisfies ethical standards, have transparent, you know, industry-wide agreed-upon reviews, um, so that we can make, make progress on these problems.
0: Yeah, we have uh, New Europe's uh, one of the big conferences in AI coming up next week, and uh, we've discussed in the past how New Europe's now requires a statement of broader impact precisely because people can use that as an opportunity to reflect on any ethical questions and address any potential uh, applications and hopefully warn people reading the paper, you know, maybe don't use it. And interestingly, um, this Nature article also highlights that the journal uh, Nature Machine Intelligence is also trialing an approach uh, in which it asks some offers of machine learning papers to include a statement considering broader societal and ethical concerns. So, yeah, we are definitely moving uh, as a field towards trying to get how to do things better and continue to do research while also considering the ethics uh, involved. And I think it, as we've said, yeah, it, it really shows how a field itself is pretty young, pretty nascent. And hopefully these are sort of growing pains where we are figuring out a lot of the best practices and they'll develop over time. And yeah, hopefully things will get better. (laughs) Yes.
3: (laughs) Well, will things get better? Yeah. Next article, (laughs) maybe not. So our last article is a Medium blog post titled, I Asked GPT-3 for the Question to 42. I didn't like its answer, and neither will you. And another article, uh, Meet GPT-3, It Has Learned to Code and Blog and Argue. And that second article is from the New York Times. So this blog post was really interesting. Um, The author uh, framed a question as a story between a father and his son, uh, and it was kind of a trick to get GPT-3 to um, discuss kind of, 42 or the question you know the meeting of life question essentially um and uh gbd3 had a really funny response that seemed kind of philosophical and open-ended um basically just the question is and just question mark you know blank Um, super (laughs) look into it um maybe some kind of weird you know error thing no 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 um if not um What what do you guys think about this?
0: (laughs) Yeah, so I I noticed this uh, GPT-3 blog post, I think on Hacker News, it made it to the front, as many GPT-3 things have. And this one was interesting to read because the guy, the author, uh, really seemed to talk about GPT-3 like an intelligent entity. He was a lot of like, was it thinking this or you know, was it making fun of me? It was giving it a lot more credit than language models really deserve. And, and as far as interstate and I was struck of uh, that. It came out right around the time of this New York Times article where there was also some, you know, sort of very similar content. Honestly, uh, they, they showed how you could use three to generate some content and then uh, wrote an article about it. So. Yeah, I think it's it's kind of interesting that we keep seeing these sorts of things. Of like, I asked GPT three to write an article about X, uh, and then people seem very fascinated by these things, and they keep popping up. Like we've had, I don't know, probably four or five instances already on on the podcast. So yeah, I feel curious, and I wonder how soon will the novelty effect wear off. How soon will you know? having AI algorithms that generate pretty coherent text that can be funny and unexpected sometimes. When will that get old? Because it seems like it hasn't yet after like half a year of having GPT three
2: around. Yeah, which is kind of uh, interesting because We've observed this AI effect. A lot of people talk about it, right? It's, uh whatever hasn't been done is called AI. <laughs> Once it's been done is no longer uh considered an intelligence anymore or an intelligent behavior anymore. Uh so maybe after a while people will realize, hey, this is actually just uh doing creative recombinations of the data that it was trained on. Uh doesn't necessarily mean the model has any internal sense of what it's really generating. It's just very good at generating text that seems coherent to humans. Um, but that's not to say, like, you know, GPT-3 isn't a super impressive uh, advance uh, in language processing. And the one thing the this uh, New York Times uh, article does the second article uh, mentioned is how OpenAI is trying to sell uh, G- access to GPT-3 or via uh, uh web API. So there definitely are some immediate commercial applications uh, to this language model. Uh, and of course, uh, we'll come back to our, our problems with the uh, de- deploying research uh, into products. Uh, there are a lot of concerns about bias. Uh, particular, you know, what if you can just flood the internet uh, with GPT-3 generated contents or contents generated by uh, similar language bots. How do you know what's real? How do you know what's not?
3: Something that really strikes me uh, with, you know, before TBD3, I I think people were wowed by StyleGAN's outputs. And I think, you know, people were like, wow, look at StyleGAN's outputs, looks real, blah, blah. And then people started to pick up on artifacts. And um, even though StyleGAN2 has come out to mitigate some of those artifacts, after people saw some of those artifacts, I feel like you know, there's a little bit of, oh, I mean, it's not quite there yet. And so it abated a little bit. So I, I also wonder if the same thing will happen here. It's was like, oh, you know, I see that little like thing there. I guess that's just GPT-3 doing its usual thing. Um, and then just like not, and then stop caring. And then maybe there has to be another big step for people to care again.
0: Yeah, I think as people try to build sort of real applications, So far, we've had a lot of these sort of like, hey, generate a story or generate an article or whatever. And people have kind of enjoyed the novelty of it a lot where, you know, it reads very coherently if you don't pay too much attention. Just like with GANs, you know, the faces look very realistic, but there are some artifacts. And so I I suspect you're right that, you know, we do still have some sort of things like... uh, artifacts with language and when you want to use things like GPT 3 for you know making products making uh, real applications those are going to be very problematic just like you know to make very high resolution images of people now you need to deal with artifacts with GANs as well
2: right but I I think it's this is definitely a fast developing field. We'll see what happens. Uh, since GPT-3 published, we already have models uh, that claim to have uh, you know, similar behaviors, but it uh, takes much less resources uh, to train and to run. Uh, and the underlying technology behind GPT-3 is only two years old, if I'm correct. Uh, so just pretty exciting. <laughs> we'll see where this goes. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I definitely know, like, GPT-3 still is fun to read the production of. And the poetry and the stories and the games that it powers, it's still novel. So I guess the novelty will not wear off for a while. And then by the time it will, we'll probably have a GPT-4 and, or a GPT-5 or whatever. So we can look forward to that. And with that, we are going to go ahead and conclude this episode of the podcast. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Scana Today's Let's Talk AI. You can find the articles we discussed here today and subscribe to our weekly newsletter with similar ones at skynettoday.com.
3: Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave us a rating if you like the show. Peace Be sure, sure to tune in next week. week.
0: Sweet, and then maybe I'll leave in the rest bloopers. This, this guy should be fun after the end. Anyway,
3: subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, and forget to, don't forget to leave us a <laughs> rating if you like the show. I'll do that again. I'm sorry, <laughs> <laughs> and just forget to leave a rating. <laughs> that might, you know, the reverse psychology might work with the people who haven't left a rating yet. So,
2: Okay. okay. Be sure to wait. Do I say it or not? Okay.
3: To do it. Sorry, I'm not so it. Jack, Jack is laughing the whole time. <laughs> Great. I love it. I love it. No, no, no it's appreciated. That's a compliment.